The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Panoptic. Uh, we're a podcast featuring conversations between a critical theorist, Juan Pablo, uh, and a management consultant, that's myself, Jason. So after podcasting for roughly a year, here's what we've realized about our show. Our original vision was to explore theories of communication. Power and technology, you know, from Foucault's panopticism and Nietzsche's will to power to Stiegler's critique of modern technology and Benenow's rebuke of the automation kills jobs discourse. Uh, through conversation with each other, we sought to bring philosophy and theory down to earth to discover their practical applications. And I think we remain true to this vision, but our podcast tends to emphasize the critical school of thought. Juan, how would you describe this school in a sentence or two? So, hey, Jason, uh, that's a Big question, but uh, I think there's a couple of param or a couple a couple of parameters that uh, origin the original version of critical theory set as their kind of guideposts or guide marks for describing what they were trying to do. Uh, and I'm, I'm referring to if critical theory originates with kind of the thinkers of the Frankfurt School in uh, in the 1920s and 30s and and 40s in in uh, thinkers like Adorno and Benjamin and Horkheimer and Marcuse and all these different uh, uh, thinkers from from that period in mm. Germany. And they, and there's a, so if I had to describe it in a couple of sentences, I would say for one, they were, their interest was, was generally on the idea of emancipation, uh, you know, kind of following on, a, on an enlightenment uh uh, heritage, the emancipation of the individual, the emancipation of society, uh, reconciliation between man and nature, and between uh, so between the human and nature, and between the human and it, and in the individual and it, the, the individual itself, uh, and their inner nature, and uh, an accounting for an accounting for the basic concepts of the theory and how they would have developed. Um, so, in a way trying to think about how the basic concepts of critical theory uh, connected to the development of societies and, and the evolution of, mm. of humankind. So those would be, I think, the three main elements of critical theory, this orientation towards emancipation and uh, of society and the individual, the kind of uh, what they would call a reconciliation or a kind of coming to peace between individuals and between the human humankind and nature and human and individuals themselves and uh, so kind of emphatic freedom right very enlightenment in sort of the orientation and an accounting for uh, an accounting for the basic concepts uh, and how they would have developed through the evolution of society not just assuming that these concepts themselves are kind of eternal or sort of transcendental, uh, they come from somewhere else, but how they would evolve in, de in developing societies. Uh, those are three, I think, main elements of, in uh, much more than three <laughs> sentences, sorry, <laughs> of what critical theory is. So those traditions and the critical prognoses, I think they're often at odds with practice as currently conceptualized, like it's tied to the logic of modern capitalism, neoliberalism, classism, whatever you want to call it. So essentially, every conversation we have here is psychologically challenging for me. Uh, I'm someone who might be characterized as a strategist of sorts. I collect and apply behavioral insights to try to make workers perform, reduce costs, and maximize efficiencies. I'm kind of your everyday DC management consultant. So the least generous critical prognosis of the consulting trade uh, says that consultants are systematically automating and streamlining away the middle class, contributing to the eradication of good jobs and upward social mobility, 
further narrowing the distribution of wealth while failing to address existentially pressing challenges like climate change. On the flip side, the technical knowledge and amazing talent uh, and intense industriousness that is contained within the consulting trade really has the potential to do much more than reinforce the status quo, given the right incentives. Daniel Markovitz's recent book, The Meritocracy Trap, which I've been slowly working through, I think it does a really good job explaining why some of the world's best and brightest or most industrious really get really are attracted to the management consulting trade or to corporate um, lawyers or to Wall Street bankers, that kind of stuff. So obviously, uh, I don't see the management consulting trade as inherently evil, more the contrary. If you're a management consultant, an entrepreneur, a business owner, you're probably smart, meticulous, organized, industrious, highly motivated, competitive. So I have amazing respect for um, for uh, these individuals, um, for the relentless hard work, for the creative spirit and innovative thinking, for problem identifiers and problem solvers, and for, for powerful managers and leaders. Um, so what we try to do here at Panoptic is really threefold and perhaps a bit schizophrenic, uh, if you haven't already gotten that sense. So we apply philosophy and theory to current modern institutional and everyday life scenarios from workplace scenarios to personal and relational scenarios. You know, for instance, we even applied Habermas's theory of communicative action to a dramatic Thanksgiving family dinner scene to address the ethics of strategic communications. That was in episode seven. It was a fun one, Juan. Um, mm-hmm. And from these topical applications of philosophy and theory, we extrapolate practical insights to help you act in the world and create results. But here's the source of our possible schizophrenia. As part of our meditations on theory and practice, we also like to critically reflect on the limitations of practice to address foundational social problems. And while I might sometimes encourage dangerous strategic thinking, Juan is always there to problematize and encourage alternative moral thinking. Do you agree with that, Juan? Yeah, I think to I think that's I th- I like to throw a wrench on uh, in the mach- machinery of the way we we might perceive uh, practice in things like work and even what the kind of work you do, Jason. But also to open up new avenues for thinking of new realms and ways of doing uh, of doing practice and doing things and acting in the world that perhaps are uh reflect on their like you said their moral or political dimensions and and uh yeah and i, I think we we managed to do it without um being at each other's throats all the time which yeah. is good so i mean our, our, our <laughs> listener value proposition is that you really get a, a very interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary experience with us the so panoptic is a vehicle for intellectual growth professional growth personal growth and at times absolute dystopian pessimism and sadness and we go through this journey together with you our listeners but also utopian possibility that's true but <laughs> only on only on our best and, days uh, our show is usually long form conversational we know that attention spans are limited and your time is scarce and valuable but it's also difficult to detail any subject matter of interest in 20 minutes so we're going to try to keep today's episode shorter to give you as a current or potential regular listener a taste of our podcast before you commit to our normal programming. Now, I'm hesitant to promise that it will end up being a shorter episode, but uh, what we're going to do is if it ends up going long, we'll put out the unabridged version uh, a week later so you can get the full story if you want to. Okay, without further rationalization, why don't we uh, dive into it, Juan? What's the topic for today? So, uh, today we're going to be discussing an article by a kind of media theorist whose name is Evgeny Morosov. He writes a lot about the internet. He writes about digital media. And this is a really interesting article where he kind of revisits an old economics debate in order to discuss how data and algorithms might be uh, used to create new ways uh, or new modes of social coordination that go beyond the logics of or mechanisms of the market. Uh, or complementing these to produce maybe let's say uh, different frameworks for for uh, motivating action and mobilizing uh, agency let's say to uh, to meet certain needs or ends right beyond the market mechanisms of uh, the price signal and uh, pr- uh, profits and competition. So and to do this, basically he's responding to this book. Uh, in this in this article, 
he's responding to a book uh, by uh, an Austrian uh, an Austrian writer, an Austrian kind of entrepreneur whose name is Victor Meyer Schumberger, uh, and uh, and a business journalist named Thomas Ramke. These are the authors of this book called Reinventing Capitalism in the Age of Big Data. So Morosov is responding first to this book. And the argument made of this book, basically, to boil it down to its essentials, Jason, and you read this as well, so... You know, this is, we're going to have an open conversation about this. The argument is that one day or soon data, digital data and algorithms are going to replace money. And why they're going to do this, and they're going to do this, uh, they're going to replace money as a mechanism, let's say, for coordinating uh, production and and consumption. Uh, And they're going to do this because uh, unlike money, they can give you much more information about uh, a commodity. So what they argue is that uh, the price system is kind of a blunt instrument. It compresses a lot of complex multidimensional preferences into one number, whereas data can give you lots of information about a commodity and much more information as a consumer. And therefore, it's a much more efficient uh, mechanism for coordinating uh, commodity production and consumption. So according to them, uh, data-driven credit systems are going to do two things. They're going to minimize information asymmetries. So, you know, uh, asymmetries between a consumer and a, and a producer, let's say when you show up at a car dealership and you don't know what's under the trunk of a car, you know, that's that's a classic, let's say, uh, asymmetry of information. Uh and they're going to and they're going to maximize efficiencies because they're going to give much more information out uh to to everyone. Yeah. Right? Uh, systems of digital data, basically da- uh, data and algorithms are going to give produce much more large data uh, sets or information sets for people to act in as market players. So responding to this claim, Morosov revisits this old debate, the, so- the so-called socialist calculation debate. It's the debate that took place between uh, liberal Austrian econom- economists like uh, Ludwig von Mies- uh, Mises and Friedrich Hayek and social democratic economists like Oscar Lang. And so this is a really interesting debate. What Morosov basically takes from it is that the debate was won by Hayek. Uh, this is, was the debate between these social democratic economists who were saying, you know, uh, the state could uh, coordinate production in certain industries by setting prices uh, to, to raw materials, to inputs, and and uh, coordinating uh, then the production of those goods, uh, and it could do it efficiently, and it was trying to argue that this could be done, right? Hayek was saying there's always a problem with uh, central state planning of production or coordination of production in that uh, there's a complexity problem. There's a bunch of different producers. There's a bunch of different raw materials. There's a bunch of different consumers with with different wants and interests and needs and desires, how can the state possibly ever catch up to any state of the system in terms of knowledge uh, and give people what they want? Prices, he says, the reason prices are actually so efficient as a coordinating mechanism, as a, co- a system for coordinating production, is not that they give you a lot of knowledge. They don't convey knowledge from one end of the market to the other. The reason that they work and why they work better than state planning, according to Hayek, is because they actually give you very little amount of information. But there are other mechanisms outside of the market, like the law, like customs, like uh, press and marketing that give you the information you need to know so that when you show up, let's say, to buy a car, you can tell by the price whether it's more or less fair or not. So the in the adjustment of kind of... Uh, of prices be, uh, based on, on a minimum amount of knowledge, you get more or less a fair price. And... A complex system of, of, or a complex population that has different wants and needs, uh, uh, can get what it wants through the price mechanism and through the competition mechanism. So this is more or less the argument, and I recommend that people read the article to kind of get the the meat of it. But it's, uh, uh, but it's, but it's the 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 sort of argument that won the day, according to Morozov, is that. Uh, is that money actually you need very little information to act as a as a consumer in capitalism you by seeing a number on a commodity 
you basically know you, you get all the information you need to know which is basically is it fairly priced how much is it going to cost me all these different things right it's 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 consumers looking at that pricing information in the context of the logic of capitalism too that's something that i i thought was interesting that i pulled from martsov's article that we all know mm -hmm. goods and services need to be monetizable they there needs to be a business case in order for them to be produced and we can look at the what's happening in the markets and we could look at that pricing information and then project out to some extent based on that intuitive logic of capitalism which provides context for us understanding you know how should we act in the world now there's going to be information mm -hmm. asymmetries but even just knowing that context and then getting some additional knowledge from other areas like media and like public discourses and um, uh, maybe even like entertainment in, in some instances. There are all sorts of places where we can get knowledge about uh, what's happening uh, in the markets that can help us uh, navigate in, in a capitalistic uh, framework, right? Right. And this gets to the key element of Hayek. I think you helped me maybe get to the key element, Jason, which is, and this is a quote directly from the article, uh, quote, as long as one economic actor discovers a set of facts that changes their evaluation of a commodity, the effects of that re uh, revaluation propagate throughout the system, driving the commodity's price up or down without anyone else needing to know what the facts actually are, end quote. So the price mechanism, the price signal uh, of the market conveys, uh, in a sense, knowledge or information or facts that don't that people don't not everybody who's acting in the system needs to know just a couple of actors discovering something immediately drives the price in one direction or another and also gives signals again to producers and consumers on how much to produce how much what something is actually worth uh, and why does this work as you pointed out jason because complexity the complexity of the system uh, uh, is handled actually elsewhere to a large extent in norms customs, rules, habits, meaning frameworks, uh, and things like um, like other spheres of knowledge production, like the press, marketing, and so forth. Uh, so this is, this is Hayek's sort of insight and how he won this argument. And so what Morosov is doing is he's saying, look, uh, um, to the writers of this text, Reinventing Capitalism, he's saying, you're getting, you're getting Hayek wrong because they use Hayek in the argument. You're getting, yeah. you misunderstand how money works. You misunderstand how capitalism works. Digital tech cannot take over as a, as a currency uh, in, within a capitalist framework because it acts by providing an overload of information It actually act in the opposite way in which money acts. Uh, uh, you're getting it all wrong, you know. What he wants to argue then is that uh, those who focus on data as a new market coordination mechanism are actually not accounting for the two axes, axes along which the problematic or the problem of coordination goes. The price information axis and the law market axis. So he argues that uh, these are both ways, price and law are both ways in which we attenuate complexity, right? In which we actually minimize the amount of information that people need to know to be able to act in the world. Uh, the law, for example, does this, and he says this, uh, here's a quote from Marisov, a system that reduces complexity by making the law explicit, thereby shifting the burden of adapting to it onto suppliers, for instance, safety standards for medicines, leaves consumer anxiety, consumers' anxiety th free. Compare this to a system that reduces complexity by using the implicit, unstated laws of capitalist competition to induce both producers and consumers to adjust their behavior. Whatever their differences in efficiency, the former system has the advantage of not secret, not secretly disciplining the consumers. What does he mean by this? End quote. He means, you know, if you show up to the doctor, and this is, I think, something people would complain about when they when people talk about, let's say, the healthcare as a marketplace. When I show up to the emergency room because I, you know, twisted my ankle or whatever, there's no price. There's, there aren't prices listed saying for a twisted ankle, this is what it's going to cost you to see the doctor, and this is what it's going to cost you to get an ER. You don't have no idea until two months later when you get a, when you get uh, uh, something in the mail saying, oh, well, you know, this is what your healthcare coverage is, and this is how much you have to pay out of pocket because an MRI costs $700, right? It's an information asymmetry, uh, and, it's a, and it's a way in which the law, rather than, than uh, taking complexity and unburdening consumers, 
has is structured in a way that the consumer is burdened by not knowing, unless they have good healthcare, in which case it's the law again on burdening consumers. Uh, it's a way in which uh, consumers are burdened by having to know too much in a system that uh, that is not really perhaps. I would argue, not very amenable to being uh, managed uh, by market signals. So what Morosov wants to argue is that uh, uh, what we really need to look at is how feedback infrastructure, infrastructure digital infrastructure, um, is owned, managed, and how we could use it to create new modes of social coordination. Jason, I think this is the key argument that he makes at the end of it, and this is what I think we're, we're, our conversation is going to center today, which is his proposals. And he says there's three ways in which we could use digital infrastructures, dig, big data and digital algorithms, feedback infrastructures, to coordinate, um, to coordinate uh, production or economic activity. One is to the, the, the China social credit system, which has been in the news recently right, where people are rated basically as how good of a citizens they are, how good their credit is in a whole difference, not just your credit, let's say, as a credit consumer of, 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 of someone who pays their credit card on time, but also as maybe like, do you use your credit card to, you know, gamble? <laughs> does your credit score go down? You know, does your credit as a citizen go down because you do it like that, right? It's a punitive system. It goes as low as how clean you leave the bathroom for the next guest. Wow. That's uh, that's crazy, right? So you know, he immediately Morosov immediately says, "Well, oh, no, 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 this is no good. Like, this is not a good way system. This is a hierarchical, undemocratic, point punitive system, which is based on discipline, disciplining people." So he says, "Actually, we should think about two other ways in which we could use these technologies to actually uh, coordinate um, economic production and even uh, modes of of social uh, social activity, right? Which are democratic and perhaps even uh, more." equitable. One is what he calls solidarity as a discovery procedure, uh, which we could talk about in a little bit, but I think is problematic. And then the other one, uh, which we'll outline as well, uh, an open conversation, Jason, which is designing non-markets. So creating modes of production that are not actually driven by the price system or by competition, but by feedback mechanisms as a way to not only regulate complexity within the system, but have the system adapt to its environment, uh, and and uh, and regulate production of goods and services in that way. This is all very complex. So let's. Uh, why don't we go ahead and talk about these two, Jason, uh, or some problems that we might have seen with these as we read the article, uh, to maybe try to lay out what exactly what um, Morisov is getting at here. I think this concept of a non-market is really. Um not intuitive at first because we have you know we, we'll find that we actually already have plenty of non-markets that accomplish all sorts of things but maybe not so readily apparent because we don't think about them in terms of non-markets um we're really i think accustomed or at least myself in my current in my my trade i'm accustomed to think of things in terms of market behavior that's you know human behavior is market behavior but i think we can shift the way that we think about this if we dig a little bit deeper into Morozov and kind of look at some of the limitations of maybe what a non-market can do. So Hayek's theory is based on capitalist consumption, right? So as such, the competitive mm-hmm. price system is highly efficient with respect to the coordination of monetizable goods and solutions across markets, as Juan really eloquently laid out. So mm-hmm. Morozov asks, what about alternative discovery procedures beyond this traditional competitive market? And He makes the observation that simply by living among other people, we can discover all sorts of problems daily, you know, some limited in scale, some specific, some of wider importance. I think of things like DIY home repairs, professional referrals, homework help. Um, These are, you know, the smaller scale things, but we discover these problems, decide their level of urgency, and we can try to resolve them. We do this all the time. Um, No competitive price system required, right? Right. So these are kind of very basic forms of non-markets. And and they and they get at this basic th- sort of distinction that he wants us to keep in mind, right? He says there's the price information access and the law market access, which is what we would maybe want to call like regulation of markets, right? right. And who is where is the burden of knowledge being placed, right? Uh, you know, this is a key distinction because because uh, as we talked about it, maybe in my example of healthcare, and we could talk about other realms. Uh, 
or we could talk about patents for knowledge, yeah. right? Patents for technology and knowledge. There are ways in which the very market mechanism, uh, through its logic and through its logics, sp specific logics, sometimes actually tends towards minimizing uh, the amount of knowledge and complexity, and actually burdening consumers with with uh, with information asymmetry. So, for instance, patents make it so that. Uh, let's say certain technologies are become the the the, the property and for a long time, for a very long yeah. time of small groups of people, and therefore are not able to disseminate out through society and be useful in in society in more realms. Uh, we could talk about patents for medicines, right? Where uh, this this you know, if we look at our healthcare system, in the United States now nowadays, in places like let's say Great Britain. There are laws, again, the law of market access that regulate that after a certain amount of years, uh, people who have uh, medicines go out into the general market and they can be reproduced in non-patent forms, right? right? Uh, general, uh, uh, I forgot the, what you would call them, but let's say you can, a lot of people can produce the medicine, uh, uh, so uh, so it's it becomes less expensive, whereas the person who holds the patent at any given point with a medicine sets the price, right? So in the US, in the, US the laws are such that Patents are for a very long time, and therefore prices can be maintained very high uh, for medicines that people need, right? So this is a way in which the law has, in a sense, burdened consumers uh, at the expense of the or consumers by benefiting, let's say, corporations which hold and and uh, and hog knowledge, right? That could be very useful to meeting social needs. Yeah, and the, that patent example is interesting. On the one hand putting a time scale on when your patent goes public essentially so others can produce at a lower cost is going to force the market's hand at least in the short term in favor of consumers you'd think because it lowered prices but sometimes it'll have the unintended effect of having those corporations just shift prices around upping the cost of other important drugs that they produce so it gets very complicated and you can see how these are these kind of become empirical questions of how do we have good data that we can process efficiently on pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. that consumers need and then disseminate them in an efficient way. And this is where technology can yeah. really potentially be useful because we don't have that technological public infrastructure so consumers can find out for themselves um, and provide feedback effectively to lawmakers. So, you know, I think for for structuring the rest of this open conversation, Jason, I, you know, I think these... I'd be interested in talking about these two suggestions he makes, right? Uh, one is uh, solidarity as a discovery procedure, and the other is designing non-markets. So let's start. And I think for designing non-markets, uh, we could talk about different modes of social coordination. We can lay out what some of them are that are non-market and how they work. But let's begin with solidarity as a discovery procedure, because I actually think this is um, a not very thought-out suggestion by Morosov. Mm -hmm and actually kind of a weak argument. So basically what he's arguing is, look, we could use digital technologies to allow, and he gives a kind of a sort of somewhat concrete example. He says, we could use it to get problem solvers m matched with people who have problems so that they can like solve the problems. Yeah. And me and you, I think both thought this kind of already sounded like things that exist in the internet, YouTube, Facebook, Reddit, right? Yeah. Of course, there's a difference, I guess, in that... Uh, the mechanisms that mediate what you see on a YouTube are based on algorithms that are kind of like <laughs> meant to try to get your your face in front of something, some kind of ad, right? Uh, or perhaps are just kind of reinforcing. So if you start watching videos about, uh, there's been criticisms about how YouTube kind of drives people to become radicalized or things like that. Uh, but you brought up the example of Reddit, which has its own kind of mechanism of mediating let's say, what information gets before people's eyeballs yeah. by a sort of more democratic framework? Well, let, let's, yeah, let's, let's talk about Reddit a little bit. I mean, it was launched mm -hmm. in 2005 with this vision to become the front page of the internet. And I think it's unique yeah. as one of those early 2000s social media platforms that has arguably come closest to maintaining its original intended model, where you know, users upvote or downvote to determine which stories move to the top of the user interface and which move to the bottom of the user interface or become hidden. And people post about problems, you know, all, all types of problems on Reddit. I post about problems on, on Reddit. You know, for instance, there are all these podcast subreddits where I've gotten advice on how to manage Panoptic. 
You know, often experts respond and provide excellent professional advice mm -hmm. at no charge. So this is really a non-market. Uh, however, uh, in 15 years, Reddit has not, as far as I know, resolved things like antibiotic-resistant bacteria, climate change, campaign finance, massive wealth inequality, right? You know, on and on. <laughs> right. You know, to be clear, many, many users discuss these large-scale public challenges frequently and passionately on Reddit, but these online social discourses alone don't, you know, they don't seem to be generating the requisite resources and motivation to bring about substantial macro-level change. Yeah. So, uh, you know, are non-markets sufficiently powerful to backfill where the markets fail to address large-scale public challenges timely? Yeah. So we're only looking at one aspect of this, so that this gets into, well, law is another kind of non-market where I think we can start to address some of these yeah. issues. But I think this brings us to one more fundamental question that is how do you turn knowledge into motivation, right? People can talk all day, all night, we have good conversations, but without ever taking action, kind of like podcasters, right? <laughs> so the mm -hmm. problem is motivation. In lieu of strong financial incentives, do non-markets have the requisite tools to incentivize large-scale coordinated action? And, you know, what is the non-market equivalent of a BP investing billions of dollars in a series of new offshore oil rigs to extract oil quicker? or a consulting firm investing millions in a new executive training facility to attract and retain the most educated employees, and on and on. You know, on the one hand, the state and or the markets can create barriers to the public coordinating an effective positive change. This is certainly a problem in America today, but if we simplify the problem for the sake of today's conversation, either the markets can monetize a problem or they can't, right? And if they can't, then they don't act. It would be against their logic to act. Yeah, yeah. I think you bring up some very key point, Jason, which is, the first proposal that Morosov makes is kind of solid discovering sort of solidarity is a discovery procedure. He says, you know, problems are discovered and there's more ways in which problems are discovered. They're not just discovered through the the interplay of uh, of competition and profit uh, driven competition in the market. Uh, you know, people, capitalists can discover new needs uh, because they're constantly looking for new markets. Yeah, that's a way of discovering needs. But there's other ways, right? And you mentioned Reddit. You mentioned other ways in which people are interacting and saying, "Hey, I'd like I'd like to figure out how to, you know, what's what's the best recipe for cooking so and so, right?" Yeah, but that already exists, and you can't solve large scale problems. So, uh, you know, to me, that seems like I'm not sure how that's innovative at all. His right. other, you bring us to the key question, Jason, which is then how is it that one can leverage and motivate action? Um, how is it that one can deploy and even curtail or structure power? How is it that one can uh, filter and mobilize communication? Uh, how is it that one can structure agency? These are the key dimensions uh, which the market has a specific and the law, as you already mentioned, as, as mechanisms already in a way regulate in their own specific logic. Uh, Morosov, of course, highlights this. He says, look, what we've seen in the last 40 years with neoliberalism is basically a way in which the law has been kind of sidelined and the market has been completely expanded, expanded as a way of regulating uh, agency power, communication, and, uh, and, and structuring agency. So what uh, I want to go back, Jason, for a second and talk about a, a couple of or several modes of, of regulating these dimensions, power, information, agency, um, and, and knowledge, right? And force that already exist and that are old. Some of them are older technology, some of them are newer to open us up to thinking what it might look like for to design a non-market using feedback, digital feedback infrastructures or mechanisms. So what are some of these? One of them is language, the oldest, mode or media or system for for doing all of these things, right? Language through grammar, which is a code at the end of the day, which allows, you know, a code that allows us to do two things. It allows us to build in a reference to the world outside of us to, uh, that uh, that two people can point at and say, well, that's a, that's a tree, that's a stone, and a horizontal kind of uh, interworldly reference through individual speakers or a group of thinkers in a speakers in a community so it has this horizontal and vertical vertical uh, reference to the world and horizontal reference to the speakers right language is a code that allows you to do that and it allows you to also to do something interesting which is like 
to talk about the, not only the present, but to talk about the past and the future. It's a code. And it also allows you to then, to then coordinate your interactions uh, beyond simple pointing and grunting, right? <laughs> it's really an advancement. <laughs> Cultural values and norms are another mode of social coordination. And I'm speaking, I'm talking specifically about culture because I'm not talking about law here. I'm talking about prescriptions, taboos, manners, beliefs. Um, these are these govern behavior and what people do and don't do based on things like banishment, uh, shame, uh, or or praise. Right? These are non-legal modes of social coordination, but they're you could say that they regulate interactions with people, between people and they regulate what people can do to each other and how they can relate to each other. Uh, what the wife can do to the husband, what the husband can, the power that he has over his children and so forth. Constitutional based law is a much more recent to an extent, especially the liberal version of it, but it's a specific technology for regulating interaction and structuring agency and neutralizing power vertically between the state and the citizen and horizontally between citizens themselves with, you know, ideally uh, it doesn't let, you know, legislation, though it does occasionally veer away from its liberal, um, its liberal kind of ideal. It wouldn't necessarily regulate morality. It would regulate, uh, it would regulate activity or action in order to sort of neutralize power and maximize autonomy. So behind, as we've talked about, or I've talked about certain time, several times in this, in this podcast, the, the basis of liberal law is we don't tell you what's good or how is it, how, what, what's, what's the good way to be as a person. We just tell you what you can't do, right? We give you limits to your agency. We tell you you can't kill somebody. We tell you you can't rob. We tell you you can't so-and-so. We're basically adding up all these autonomies of individuals to equal the maximum autonomy. Uh, so these are modes, right, of social coordination. Money is also a relatively new, it's an old technology, but structured as a, as a market system with the backing of the state, it's actually relatively new. Um, we could point to, to the rise of the, the, the modern nation state and mercantilism in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries with states, big nation states like France, uh, Great Britain, uh, and so forth. Modern states that taxed, their citizens that had a commercial policy and so forth, and that understood the market, started thinking of the market scientifically as something you could regulate, as something that you could direct, as something that you could um, that you could uh, expand, as something that you could, in a sense, uh, manage. Right? Hmm. This is a this is a relatively new thing, and and the thinking of and as money as something that you could have a policy around, right? Central banks and all this stuff. So these are modes, this gets at the key question, Jason, which I think we've been trying to understand and wrap our heads around, which is if you have, if the market in a sense is a specific way of, of motivating and structuring agency, of mobilizing force, uh, the force of lots of people who work together to do complex tasks, to, uh, of, of deploying power, if money is a way of deploying power, and also if it's a way of conveying knowledge, as we, as we saw with the Hayek socialist calculation debate, not a lot of knowledge, but a minimum amount of knowledge so that it's effective through the price mechanism and regulating uh, what a commodity might be worth uh, th through a very small amount of information uh, in a very light and uh, an efficient way. What other ways could we uh, tack on digital feedback mechanisms, which convey so much information, right, to these old mechanisms of the state, of the law, of bureaucracy, of the market, and of maybe, let's say, the public sphere, the press, and other modes of communication like Reddit. How could we use uh, digital feedback mechanisms, which in a sense we already see with Reddit uh, using as a way of kind of enhancing the public sphere? How could we use them then to, to let's say, into the in the very realm of production, of uh, the large coordination of uh, economic production, how could we use it to be more? And I think these are the the main fo things to focus on, right? Democratic, uh, sustainable. Um, how could how could it be? We ensure that it neutralizes power, so that uh, so that there's no abuse of uh, of this realm. And how could we make sure that it's most uh, let's say efficient, right?
continues to be efficient, kind of like the market has its own modes of efficiency. But cutting out the inefficiencies of the market, the, the asymmetries that burden individuals with with uh, with uh, uh, with having to know things that they couldn't, couldn't possibly know as consumers and minimizing the kind of injustices or inequalities of, uh, of market mechanisms and their kind of destruction elements. So the kind of problem, problems of uh, environmental unsustainability and things like that. So Reddit has this democratic infrastructure, and I guess mm-hmm. we can ask the question, how could we have a, like a public knowledge management platform or social coordination platform to amplify democratic feedback to lawmakers. Mm -hmm. And we can ask the question, it might bring us to a more fundamental question of how democratic is our current system? And, you know, ideally, we would hope that there are public discourses and public spheres that are intellectually complex. Those discourses feed into a legislative process to determine policy. Um, and then, if needed, those policies are um, after well, they're executed. But if there are um, questions of constitutionality, they're tested in the in the judicial branch, and then it filters back into the public sphere. And you kind of have this cyclical process of discourses, um, uh, policy making, execution, and testing for constitutionality. Right. Reddit performs one aspect of that: the amplification of the discourses which then determine through an algorithmic process which of those discourses get highlighted, which get um, kind of pushed to the side or hidden. You know, we have things like questions of having to reform our campaign finance system. We have lobbyists. We have big money. You know, we talked about some of the incentives um, that determine how our uh, supposedly democratically elected representatives actually get elected, you know, it takes capital to run a successful campaign, which means we often have big money in the pockets of our elected officials, which means by the time they get to office, they might not actually be acting in the interest of the public. So those public sphere dialectics aren't always getting filtered up to the top. Can we use technology to enhance that, to amplify those voices? But then also we need to think more at the legal level. How do we need to modify some of those incentives so we can actually just have a more fundamentally democratic process. And those are almost two separate questions. But I do think if we address the legal problems, we can use technology kind of in the way that Marzov talks about it, bringing problem havers, problem solvers together to kind of enhance that democratic process to have better access to data at the right time for the right people uh, and use yeah. that information to have better conversations and to direct feedback to uh, law and to right. and to the markets in some cases too. The, those those non markets can have an influence on where we spend our money, what we consume, what we invest in. Andrew mm-hmm. Yang talks about a uh, scorecard, right, where we can essentially have a Yelp, and there are problems with Yelp. We might get to that, but a way of kind of talking um, or coordinating the performance of different firms on things like sustainability, on uh, investment in local communities, in how they treat their employees, all these things that the uh, economy, particularly the futures economy, the derivatives economy, they don't really pay attention to and it becomes uh, becomes abstracted away from how people are really doing on the ground. But yeah. if we can really capture that information and share it in an efficient way, and that doesn't really exist uh, in, a, in, in kind of a centralized a compelling way where people, you know, can together share that knowledge and turn it or share that information, turn it into actionable knowledge, that would really be key and kind of gets into mm-hmm. how do we strategically communicate? Um, how do we mobilize? Uh, um, or how do we structure these knowledge management platforms to really create, you know, turn knowledge or help facilitate the the transformation of knowledge into action or into motivation? Yeah. Right. And and that's that's a key um, that's a key observation, Jason, because of because in the kind of theory of uh, theory of liberal democracy, the virtuous cycle is supposed to work, and we've discussed this, right? Public sphere, robust conversation, is a way of sort of like giving signals to the citizenry, the citizenry producing signals of what it wants, what it needs. That is supposed to transfer into the into a legislative process where these signals in a way or desires, wants, political desires and interests uh, and even contending interests 
are transformed into law. And that law is supposed to be in concordance with the system of rights. It's supposed to structure agency then to maximize then uh, this kind of uh, autonomy within the context of this of this interplay of, of opposing and sometimes clashing interests uh, to ensure a kind of universal, each law is supposed to, in a sense, be universal, applicable in a universal sense. Anybody that could say anything about it would say, yeah, I think that's a legitimate, legitimate law. Sure, it, it curtails some of my agency here and there, but I think at the end of the day, um, it's fair, right? And that's supposed to be then applied in a set of uh, in a set of actions by the executive, which are constantly supposed to be being checked by the judiciary. That's supposed to be, a, and that, and the the actions of the executive through its administrative branches, through the, for its uh, execution of the law, and the laws that are being passed by the very judiciary are supposed to, in a way, uh, affect the public, which again reacts through this discourse to get once again inform this virtuous cycle. And yet. There's this assumption then that the market itself will be the separate sphere, neither public sphere, neither state, but something separate where the egotistic activities of individuals seeking out their happiness through the mechanism of the market and competition and price-driven competition will play itself out to make sure that the distribution of goods and services is the most equitable possible, right? So this is kind of like, as you mentioned, however, there's a short circuit when the market through its deployment of money, is able to short-circuit this, this virtuous cycle of communication turned into law, turned into uh, executive actions that, that are reacted upon by the public once again to, re to begin the, circle, the cycle again. Uh, the market, which is somehow thought of or imagined as being neither in the state, neither in the public sphere, and sort of how be acting beyond both of these realms and better left alone and untouched because therefore it'll be more efficient. Unf you know, uh, in, in fact, or it steps into the realm of not only public discourse, right? Uh, and short circuits, kind of like the idea that uh, of a robust public discourse sometimes, right? Who owns the, who owns me, who owns media, who determines what appears on the media, uh, both the right and the left, I think, would be in agreement that they're that uh, they're sort of a skeptic, skeptical of who uh, of how our corporate media functions, yeah. and therefore, and also who has who has the money through uh, through a system in which politicians are constantly needing money to run campaigns. Right. Who has the money to actually influence policy? So how is this supposed supposed virtual cycle actually being, in a sense, kind of circuited? And therefore, the key question is, as you as you well said Jason is how could feedback digital feedback mechanisms actually create actually really enhance this virtuous cycle of communication make it more readily known what people actually want uh, make it more robustly uh, make the feed, the administrative mechanisms of of regulation of markets and of deployment of sort of public goods more reactive to people's actual needs in a way that's decentralized not bureaucratized and not linked to the interest of power stakeholders uh, and on the other side of the market how is it that perhaps complementing the market non-markets or even perhaps taking over the functions of the market in central in certain realms uh, non-markets could actually be uh, efficient democratic uh, sustainable and fair right in a way as a way of regulating production these are very key questions the key is that we have this suddenly we have these digital technologies that give us incredible power of managing an incredible amounts of complexity and these could and we could use these uh, to, to we could leverage these through new institutions and new frameworks to uh, enhance some of these uh, supposed li liberal democratic uh, th uh, values right and theories and ideals of a virtual cycle on in the between the public sphere and the kind of uh, state and uh, and a cycle of uh, of managing production of goods and services for in, for a very complex po a pool of individuals who all want different things, right? Who don't want to be uh, I don't know eating the same thing <laughs> and consuming the same furniture and living in the same places. And we could talk about how there already exist certain non markets that do something like this, right? Uh, we could talk about let's say public schools and education. And education, I think, is a key factor because that's where we're being socialized, right? Uh, 
public utilities, uh, public utilities as sometimes being uh, kind of um, managed in a, by municipalities or the state, where there might be a component of the market uh, through, let's say, contracting for upkeep, uh, but not necessarily for management and setting of prices. Uh, yeah, we could talk about other ones as well, right? But how is it then that that um, I think that's the key question, right? Yeah, contracting itself is is I think one of the more interesting mm-hmm. uh, mechanisms for creating market action in areas where the markets wouldn't naturally go. Right. Right. Um, we've talked in depth about the military industrial complex and we've, mm-hmm. we've both kind of seen that firsthand, but the state has had a lot of success and going back to world war II, um, identifying state needs and or public needs and saying, okay, we're going to invest this amount. We're going to appropriate this amount of capital towards this requirement. And we're going to solicit the private sector for solutions. And then we'll select the, vendor with the lowest price and the best past performance. Therefore, we maintain and some other things too, and their small business requirements and all these other things that have been tacked on to make it a more uh, competitive and more uh, socially um, sound process. It still maintains a competitive market while getting those vendors to perform services in an efficient way, um, sometimes right. urgently because you know there's money involved then they're going to you know stay up nights and weekends to write those proposals so they get you know they win the contract um so you can do that outside of the defense sphere right you can do that in all sorts of areas we can do that Mm -hmm. for developing clean energy technologies it's just a matter of you know question of capital um whether the we we print more money or we um uh tax more or those things where is that revenue going to come from um, and that gets into a whole slew of other questions that I don't know if we're going to address today. Yeah. But um, but there are all sorts of things you can do with a federal procurement process, and it doesn't actually require um, nationalizing. And there's now I'm not saying it doesn't make sense to nationalize in, in some cases, mm-hmm. but you contract out, you still get to maintain um, competitive market efficiency. Right. Right. And th- and I think in that context of contracting, I think one interesting thing to ask is how do digital feedback mechanisms uh, uh, push that system, those systems of contracting in different realms to make them, again, more democratic, more efficient, more responsive to needs, more responsive to specific constituencies or populations that are being supposedly, whose needs are being met by those public services. Uh, and and maybe, if necessary, uh, either coupled to markets or decoupled from markets, uh, how do you make them like? Uh, how do you make them both attenuate complexity uh, through certain rules and giving certain standards, and 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 adapt to complexity of an environment? And you know, one again, one another another concrete example, Jason, I think is housing. Yeah. Housing in the United States, for instance, has a history since World War II, and I. I, I think it, I go back to this often because I think it's a great example. Before World War, before World War One, you could say most Americans did not own house, houses. They didn't own their own spaces to live because most people couldn't come up with the amount of money that you needed to build a house. People who owned houses usually build houses piecemeal or small or by contract. Small small builders, they would say, "Hey, I need a house," and these would be probably better off people, and they would pay. You know, because they would, um, you have to amass a certain amount of capital to build a house, right? So building was regionally based. It was small builders, and it was individual clients who said, "Hey, I want you to build me a house." What happened is the state realized the United States, and the state realized several things, but it realized among other things that that the production of housing could be a lo- a driver of economic growth, and that if you created mechanisms to allow people, regular people, to have access to capital and to have banks loan them money that you would actually uh, be able to produce, you know, you'd, you'd incentivate market players to produce housing. How do they do yeah. this? They did certain things, among which were creating things like FDIC insurance. Hey, give that person a loan. It's okay if they only give you about 20% down on the on that huge loan of, for, you know, a $40,000 house. It's okay if they only give you $10,000, $8,000. We'll back up with the full backing of the state that loan so that if the person defaults don't worry you're not out of money 
you have insurance from the state. You're going to be good. So what does that do for the bank? The bank is willing to lend money to Joe Schmo, who's not rich and who doesn't have $40,000 in his pocket. He only has 8000 That was just one of the mechanisms through which the state was able to nationalize housing production. Not nationalize, but create national markets for housing production. Something that, this, that the that individual capitalists themselves could not necessarily do. They didn't have the interest or the perspective to want to do that. Uh but that's not just the that's not the only way that you can manage housing, right? The city, you know, I gave you this example when we were talking earlier. The city of Vienna uh, in Austria it manages housing as a public good. So they regulate the production of, and, and, and building of housing very carefully. But they've managed to create a mechanism which is relatively democratic, relatively open, relatively decoupled from abuse from power. So that it's a procedural system. It's also competition based in that individual firms are are uh, competing to build very uh, high quality housing, and given certain standards that I set that are set by the municipality of space, uh, environment, um, safety codes, and so forth. Yeah, it's. It's a complex system, and one would one would uh, you know I recommend that you people read about it, and one would have to examine it to see why exactly it works as well as it does, so that it so that Vienna, unlike a lot of other cities in Europe, has has relatively low housing prices. A large proportion of this city of well-to-do of a very wealthy city live in public housing. Public housing isn't synonymous to you know bad quality, and you know it's actually synonymous with good quality. Uh, and there's still a small you know, private market, like 30% or 40% of the housing is private. So, uh, uh, which tends to be more expensive, not as good quality. So it's so it's an interesting example of a place where a mix of law, regulation, and market work together. But what about, again, the question remains, what if we, how could we use feedback mechanisms to make, to make that even more efficient, even more democratic, even yeah. more uh, responsive to people's needs, right? So there's there's always problems of responsiveness to needs when you have a bureaucratized system. Like, where do people want to live? What what choices do they have? Uh, these are questions that in Vienna probably are a little different than, let's say, in the United States, right? Well, as we come to a close here, maybe let's just take a few more minutes to reflect on what would, you know, let's say we want to build a, some kind of public... Um, knowledge management platform or social coordination platform to amplify that democratic process, that feedback mechanism. Maybe mm-hmm. let's reflect on what could that look like? What are some of the challenges? Um, and then we can set the stage for some future conversations. I'm sure we're going to return to this uh, soon. Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, I think this tool probably needs to be publicly owned, right? We noted that you know forms of advertising on private platforms like Reddit or even Facebook, they're not necessarily impediments to effective user problem solving, but they do pose strategic risks to the integrity of the system's democratic infrastructure. You, know, you have bots and foreign enemies posing as your friendly social activist or corporations, trade institutions, and public affairs specialists attempting to artificially influence dialectics. So... Mm-hmm. Whether the system is nationalized, decentralized to the states or counties, or some combination of the three, we need to address what I'm going to call, I think, the Yelp problem. And as, right. as you're probably aware, you know, Yelp user scores and reviews, true or false, they can significantly impact local businesses and particularly restaurants, right? Yeah. Yelp, Yelp decided to capitalize on this problem in a very naughty way in 2014, <laughs> you know, a, Naughty, naughty Yelp. A group of small businesses, they organized against Yelp, and they characterized Yelp's business model as mafia-like. Allegedly, Yelp mm. extorts restaurants by raising or lowering their reviews based on whether they buy ads. So anyone yeah. can post a review on Yelp, but just you know, just assume you're a small restaurant owner. For whatever reason, you get a lot of bad reviews for a week. Maybe your chef went rogue and you had to fire them, or maybe some former... Customers disagreed with your political views and decided to punish you. Uh, well, Yelp comes in and says, hey, either you buy ad space or we're going to highlight all of these unjust reviews at the top of your page. Wow. And, no. and conveniently for Yelp, the company takes a non-interventionist approach when it comes to likely untrue scores and reviews. They say, if you get a bad review, oh, well, you know, you're welcome to denounce the reviewer in the comments. But really is to no avail. That overall score on the top of your page, which you don't even own, can really tarnish your reputation. 
So, yeah. you know, returning to this problem of creating a public knowledge management platform to coordinate problems and solutions, kind of in the way that Morozov talks about it. The Yelp problem, it's another good reason to remove capital incentives from the mix, but it also yeah. begs the question, yeah. uh, how much power does the state have over user knowledge management and communications, the bureaucratic state, right? You know, while yeah. tech corps right now, they, they now struggle with this problem of when to censor speech, usually to appease advertisers. Um, any U.S.-based public knowledge management platform should certainly defer to the U.S. Constitution, right? You might even have a highly advanced algorithm or AI with constitutional amendments and laws programmed into it. But even then, you'd still probably need some human administrators to ensure the system is running as intended. And as yeah. we've discussed before, you know, the U.S. currently outsources nearly 100% of its technical capability and knowledge to private actors. So you might have a committee of technology contractors making decisions about which data points need to be factored or modified to render which recommendations to users, which conversations to highlight or hide. So this could get very complicated and influence how people are determining, you know, which products they need, which services they need, uh, where... Uh, where we're coordinating resources. So yeah. democratic procedures should minimize the need for any administrative bureaucracy, and you might create a very good algorithm that is transparent to the public. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and site users ultimately determine how information is shared and actualized into knowledge, but we also know that democracy in its purest form can result in remarkable injustices. So we should still require checks and balances to align the infrastructure and goals of the systems to the infrastructure and goals of our overall liberal democratic system. And that's really a question for our technologists and people with uh, strong legal backgrounds to work out, right? Yeah. yeah you bring up, a, I think, a key question to maybe end with, which is the other way to look about at that kind of liberal democratic theory right and it's kind of basic insight that the law is through a system of rights and when i'm talking about a system of rights you know the basic system of rights or the kind of basic liberal system of rights is the negative rights that structured uh the original kind of classic liberalism which is uh laws that uh that are about what the government can't do to you and others can't do to you. Basically, the realms of freedom that you have, uh, association, speech, uh, life, property, uh, and so forth, right? Uh, this, this, uh, this, another way to look at this, uh, and we could abstractly designate this as the, as a neutralization of power vertically from the state to the individual and horizontally from each individual to themselves, uh, with the sort of equation, if we put it in math terms, the Kantian equation of of the adding up of autonomies to equal the maximum autonomy, the maximization of all autonomies, um, the maximization of freedom. Another way to look at it is we have to balance public interests and private interests, right? Uh, the idea is maximizing the public interests uh, while maintaining private in private intentions or interests, right? And and what you just I think the Yelp is a the Yelp problem is an interesting example because what we have there is the private interest of profit of a specific company that has access to digital technologies that are about disseminating information to the populace to make decisions and and misusing their uh, their their market power and their information kind of clout uh, to hurt in a mafia like way companies that don't want to be part of that market. And that's uh, and that's a disservice not only to those individual small uh, players or non you know small market players and to the people who are trying to make decisions on where they want to go. Yeah, right. It's it's a way in which there's an abuse of uh, public inter of the public interest by uh, by the intrusion of a public private interest. So I think that's a good example, Jason, because I think it it highlights to us how uh, one of the key questions here is how. You want a reactive, whether it's in the administrative framework of, of providing public goods, whether it's in production of goods and services in actual production, agriculture, um, uh, housing, uh, consumer goods, or whether it's in, in the public sphere and through discourse, you want maximum uh, flow of information, maximum neutralization of power, um, maximum expansion of knowledge, and maximum capacity uh of, of structuring or maximum, let's say, autonomy of agency while at the same time structuring it in a way that public and private are balanced, right? These, be, these, are, these are key questions that we have to continue 
anybody designing a non-market would have to be in line with balancing public and private interests, neutralizing power, maximizing communication flows, maximizing reaction to actual needs in a complex system, and uh, and 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 uh, and a structuring of agency that is that is, that is in balance with public and private interests. To put it in a very abstract way, but these are things that we would have to check off if we designed it on a market. Otherwise, you get you know all these ways in which in which in which either the private and public interests are out of balance or someone bureaucratically is able to abuse their power right uh, this was the problem in the soviet union yeah. you had this new class of of bureaucrats that uh, could easily abuse their power because they had they had this they had say over things like production um in a way that was completely undemocratic and they could uh and uh and there there was you know there was a a whole set of abuses that could take place in that realm. Uh, whereas opposed to the market system, let's say, is supposed to discipline people who abuse their power uh, through the decisions of, of who buys goods or doesn't buy goods, right? right? But we know that also the market system opens itself up to its own abuses uh, through monopolization, through hogging of knowledge, through influencing of the political system, through other, you know, through other ways in which it does so. So, uh Beyond the old dichotomy of just, you know, regulation or market, state or public or private, state or, or market, I think it's important, interesting to think about uh, Morozov's argument and expanding and going beyond the argument as in, well, how do digital feedback mechanisms allow us to, to start innovating um, in all of these realms and maybe creating new mechanisms, right? Yeah. yeah. And we're, you know, we're we're in this knowledge age now where we're stricken with the problem of how we, how do we take all of this data that we have? We're able to collect so much data now and we're going to collect more of it. How do we process it and share it, talk about it in such a way that we can turn it into actionable knowledge. And there's so mm -hmm. much we can do, do with that in the markets, in the non-markets, um, to make our lives better. So I, I think maybe that's where we can end this, that we need to think creatively and, um, be innovative about how do we, do something, um, how do we bring technology into the public realm, which is, you know, traditionally over the past 15 years really been owned by Silicon Valley technocrats. How do we bring right. it into other domains so we can start doing some uh, interesting, helpful things with it? And yeah. um, that's the part of the conversation we're going to continue to have on Panoptic. Excellent. Looking forward to it, Jason. Awesome. All right. Well, um, Hopefully, uh, I don't know how long this conversation was. I think it was shorter than our normal ones. Um, <laughs> in closing, I think it was. Um, you know, check us out on uh, all the social media platforms. You can listen to uh, Panoptic on all of the, um, essentially every single uh, podcast platform, I believe. And uh, if you like what you're hearing, uh, please uh, check out some of our some of our other episodes. And uh, if you really, really like it and you have the means, uh, feel free to check out our Patreon and uh, give us a few bucks here or there so we can uh, continue to expand the podcast and do some uh, interesting things with it. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.